right, so we got the first Sunday of 2024. Excited to see everybody here. Uh, the plan this year is to, uh, is to go through and do an in-depth, well, I mean, as much as I can, in-depth study on the life of Christ uh, throughout, this, throughout this year. Uh, the first couple of weeks as we get started, it'll be more of an introduction, um, kind of helping us to maybe have some idea or a better idea of the context of exactly what's going on, some of the people and, and groups of people that Jesus is going to be interacting with, some of, the, uh, some of the issues these people were facing in that day. You know, what they were looking at, it, you know, uh, is completely different, you know, from a Christian's perspective today than it was many years ago. But we're all reading the same book, so it's important for us to understand. Whenever we talk about, uh, you know, Herod, what that meant, that what that name meant. The same way that, you know, if you were having a conversation with somebody today and somebody brought up the name Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Joe Biden, it would immediately, for us as Americans living in this day, it would immediately trigger certain thoughts and feelings and, and arguments or whatever, you know, whatever might go on during that time. So, uh, but however, before we jump into that, we will open up with prayer request list. Did we have anything new, Miss Laura, that we wanted to call out? Okay, okay. So Brother Ray's sister passed away. So, oh man, terrible. So, and, and certainly here at the church, we've had um, several families that have dealt with lost loved ones here in the last few weeks, and so continue to, to pray for them. So we didn't have anything anything new other than that. Um, but please just be faithful in praying for those prayer requests. Yes, sir, Brother Coons. Okay. Okay. Yeah, please be in prayer for that serious uh, health need there. Uh, they're dealing with cancer and had a heart attack on top of that. Yeah, the yeah, being prayer at the Samson household. I don't know what's going on over there, but uh, it's been a rough couple of couple of weeks there for them as well. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's open up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started here today. And um, Brother Coons, if you would open a, 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 us up in a word of prayer this morning. So, as I was mentioning uh, before, prayer, prayer request time this year, uh, we're going to attempt to go through and do a, a full study of the life of Christ, and the approach we're going to take is um, there are, it, it depends on who you talk to, there's some debate, is it, you know, 56, is it 57, some people, whatever, uh, but bottom line is there's roughly ballpark about 52 to 53 days of Jesus recorded in the Bible. Um, so, ve it, so, very, so very few days when you think about, you know, the impact it's had upon the world, um, but, uh, but roughly 52 to 53 days. So, you know, there are 52 weeks in a year, so that kind of that lines up pretty close, um, although you, we always have to kind of take into account we're going to have a few Sundays where we'll have other events going on, and so we'll have, uh, we'll, we won't have Sunday school, or I might be out of town, those types of things are going to happen. But the goal is to try and get through those 52, 53 days of the life of Christ. Some of those are going to be easy, because some of those are a simple verse that just says, and Jesus went into dot, 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 and that's all he did that day. And then you have other days where, you know, especially when you talk about his final week, uh, where, you know, you, you could spend, we, we could spend the rest of our lives that we have here on this earth doing nothing but teaching on the week of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and not even touch the hem of the garment of all the truth that's in it. And so we're going to try and cram all that in one day. So we got some things we're going to have to kind of balance. But before we kind of jump in head first, um, I'd like to, uh, this week, um, and for sure next week, maybe even into our third week, uh, do a little time just doing kind of a, an overview 
kind of getting a good idea of the lay of the land, of what exactly is going on during this time in world history, uh, who are all the kind of the key players that are going to be involved in this story. So whenever someone talks about the zealots, we all know what that is. Let's, let's kind of define these different groups of people um, that we're going to come across in the Bible um, and help us have a better understanding of the context of the days and times. And then, and that's what we'll spend most of our time today talking about. And then next week, and maybe, maybe possibly two weeks, but one for sure, before we get into the actual, you know, into the, the very detail of every single day of Jesus' life, I'd like for us to take a, a Sunday, perhaps two, and just look, talk about the overall ministry of Jesus. Like, really, what was his overall teaching? What was his overall mission? What was his goal? Um, you know, what was some of the, what were, what were some of the, the key, uh, key ways that he taught? So we know what he's teaching. How did he teach and what was, what were the truths? So anyway, we'll talk about those next week, um, for sure. But this week, I wanted to spend a little time talking about when you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter one, uh, and you begin reading, you know, if you've just, if you just finished reading, you know, your old Testament and you come into the new Testament, you're going to come across a whole bunch of new words and a whole bunch of new situations and a whole bunch of new groups of people that were not mentioned in the Old Testament. And so I want us to know who, the, who those people are and how do they come to be? Where did they come from? What was their purpose? Um, how do they have a, uh, a role in the story? For those that were here a few years ago when we did our study going through the entire Bible, we spent one Sunday talking about the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today is going to be repeated Although there is some new stuff in here as well that I think just, just since we talked about it last time, there's a couple other things that kind of I've come across. But also, what I'd like to do today is, um, this d distinct from the last time, is um, I'm going to approach it from the prophecy in Daniel chapter number 2. So I've passed out for mo most of you um, an image, and it's a statue, and this is the prophecy that Daniel gets in Daniel chapter number 2. And if you want to turn over there this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, us to approach coming into the New Testament and coming into the, 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 wor the world, uh, the world history, um, from the perspective of Israel going through all these changes in power from, from one world power to the next. So what is going on in Daniel chapter number two? Well, there's a prophecy that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar is greatly troubled by this prophecy, and, and he can't even remember, um, not by the prophecy, by the dream, he's troubled by this dream, and he can't even remember what the dream is, but he calls all of his magicians and all of his wise men that, that were there in Babylon, because Neb Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, and he says, um, I want you to, I'm, I can't sleep, I'm troubled, and I, want, I had a, dr a horrible dream, and I want you to tell me what my dream is, and I want you to tell me what the interpreta interpretation of my dream is, and if you can't do that, I'm going to kill everybody. And so, whenever the story comes out, you know, Daniel hears it, and he's like, well, hey, I'm part of this group of, you know, considered, because Daniel was one of these chosen young men of Israel, and he was kind of put in, put in, uh, in a place as like a, a prince in power and uh, in, in some type of authority. Anyway, the point is, Daniel's like, well, let me go to God and pray, and so God, Daniel goes to God, and, and God gives him the dream, and he gives him the interpretation, and what you see in Daniel chapter 2 is Daniel giving Nebuchadnezzar the answer to his dream. And in this dream that we're going to read here in a moment, it talks about this statue. And this statue is made of many different precious metals. It starts out as gold. It goes to silver, to bronze, to, to iron, and then iron mixed with clay at the very end. And what this interpretation is, is, is God is giving a vision to Nebuchadnezzar to say, 
you know, you, you were on the scene today, but you'll not be on the scene tomorrow, and I will. And I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use other kingdoms to bring about the, uh, the salvation of the world. And he's going to do that through the changing of these different world powers or these different kingdoms that would be in existence. So uh, whenever, you begin, whenever you finish reading uh, the Old Testament, this is what's happened in the history of, from Israel's perspective. Israel was um, under the authority of King David and, and king after king. Now, Israel did split. And so then you had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. But they continued to reign for hundreds of years. But what you find as you read the, old, as you read the Bible is you find that you know, you'd have a good king like David and a, a, a decent king like Solomon. And then you'd have a bad king like Jeroboam. And then you'd have a, a halfway decent king like Josiah. And you'd have a der- terrible king like Ahab. And it would just kind of go back and forth from good king to bad king. But it was mostly bad kings. And so God would send prophets uh, 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 Elijah, Elisha, he, uh, Samuel, he would send prophets and he would say uh, to go to the people, go to the kings and tell them to repent, but the people would continue to persist in their rebellion. And so God would then begin to send other nations to come and judge his people. And he would use these nations to, to defeat them in battle, um, to, to bring about the slaughter of people because God was judging his people because they were worshiping false gods. And God had purchased them. He had purchased them uh, through uh, bringing them out of Egypt. And he had brought them to be his own chosen people. And they had re- rebelled. And the way that God looked at it, he said, you're committing adultery on me. You're cheating on me. I've taken care of you. I've provided for you in the wilderness. I've established you a kingdom. I've given you kings. And yet you continue to worship idols. And if you don't stop, I'm going to destroy you. And he sends messenger after messenger. Some of these are called the spoken prophets that I mentioned. Elisha, Elijah, some of these are the written prophets, the minor prophets that we read about, you know, Nahum, uh, Micah, Habakkuk, uh, those are the written prophets. But these prophets were being sent to call the people back to God, and they continued to rebel, and finally God says, uh, and, you know, we've we've talked about in class before, but eventually it comes down to the northern kingdom is overthrown. They were were more uh, wicked than even the southern kingdom, so they went to captivity first. But eventually you have the, the lone holdout of the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem finally continues to rebel against God, and so God finally sends Babylon down, and they completely destroy Jerusalem. And when I say completely destroy, I mean they completely destroyed everything. It was all gone. And not only did they destroy the city of Jerusalem, they said, we want to destroy these people. That's what Babylon did. When they came in, you didn't exist after they got through with you. You were assimilated, and they would take away your culture. They would take away your language. So in the Bible, it says they took captives out of Jerusalem, and they only took the best and brightest. They left all the ones they felt like were inferior behind, and they took the best and the brightest, and they took them to Babylon, and they brainwashed them. They said, you can't speak Hebrew anymore. You can't worship anymore. You're going to begin worshiping our gods, and they... You know, you know the story of Daniel and how uh, they said they were gonna, you're going to eat certain meat. And Daniel said, I can't. You know that story, the story of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, you're going to worship our God, not your God. They were trying to break down their culture. They did that through taking away their language and taking away their history and taking away their capital. And that's what Babylon did. And so then you have this nation of Israel that is, they're dispersed across the, across the region. Most of them have been taken into cap- captivity in Babylon. And if you read the story here in Daniel, well, let's, let's read the story here 
uh, uh, briefly before we get too far down the road. Chapter 2, verse number 36. So we're kind of speeding up here. We're now Daniel's giving the revelation, the interpretation back to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is the dream, uh, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art his head of gold. Thou art, I'm sorry, thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom, inferior, inferior to thee, and another a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things. And as iron that, uh, that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of a potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, and there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay. And as the toes of the feet uh, were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the a God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall uh, not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And so this is the interpretation, and what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, God is telling you, uh, I'm just using you, you're just, you're just one of my tools in my toolbox, and I'm going to use somebody else after you. And if you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he gets sent out and he thinks he's a cow, and he begins to eat for seven years, and finally he comes back to his mind. And what does he do? He praises God. He praises, you can read it in the book of Daniel, he praises God. But this is who's in power at this time. And, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't stay in power. Actually, there's, uh, there's uh, messages sent um, uh, to the ruler saying that, you know, the handwriting is on the wall, and you're not going to be king forever. And there's another uh, nation coming after you, and this was the nation of the Medes and the Persians. And this is a very powerful group of people. This is that, so you have the head of gold, which is Babylon. You have this next group of people, which are represented as silver, the Medes and the Persians. And this is uh, a group of very, very powerful people. This is uh, Darius, and this is Cyrus, and this is the, the Xerxes. These are the kings that we read about that were ruling at that time in, in the Medes and the Persians. And they come on the scene, and what you find is this group of people, this, this, uh, this world power was very uh, friendly towards Israel. Whereas Babylon came in and they set up their own uh, kingdom and, and religion and, and people and they tried to wipe away everybody else from off the face of the earth, uh, the, the Persians would come in and they would, they would let you worship your own god. They, 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 as long as you worshipped uh, the, the ruler of Persia, you could worship your own god. So they would allow them their own religion and they were very friendly to them. And this is actually, you'll find there's actually prophecy in Isaiah that says that God was going to use a king by the name of Cyrus, and he was going to shepherd his people back to Israel after they'd been taken captive. And so these people are in Babylon. Babylon is overthrown by the Persians. The Persians come in, and they're very friendly towards the Jews. They're very friendly. They, um, this is the group of, uh, this is the time in the Bible where you find that they are, um, that Ezra is given permission to go back um, and Zerubbabel was given permission to go back and they rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah is given permission to go back and build the wall. And this is the time where Esther actually marries King Xerxes at this time um, in the Bible. And so you find a lot of goodwill given towards the Jews from the Persians. And so, um, so they're able to, uh, after uh, being in captivity for 70 years, they're able to leave captivity and go back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. 
but at this time, uh, the, the Persian Empire begins to um, grow very, um, uh, very wealthy, and it, t- it turns into a very luxurious, uh, a very luxurious um, type of an empire or a kingdom. And basically what happens is, it's the old saying, you know, hard times make, you know, good men uh, and good men make soft men, and soft men make hard times. You guys have heard this thing that kind of goes out in society. Well, this is what happened. You had a bunch of soft men, and they created a soft kingdom. And so Persia began to rot from the insides. Um, and this is actually, if you go back and you read the book of Esther, what's actually happening in chapter number one is when Xerxes goes to Greece, and he's going to try and take over Greece, and he gets defeated. And he comes back, and that's where they're trying to cheer him up, and they're trying to, you know, get him a wife and make him feel happier. That's what happens in the book of Esther there in those first couple of chapters. But what you can find is Persia's not as strong as they used to be. They went over into Greece. They're going to take over Greece, and they got defeated. And now you hear about this kingdom um, of Greece beginning to appear on the scene as Persia begins to get wealthy and opulent and soft, and and their military begins to become defeated. Now you see Greece begin 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 to step onto the stage as a world power, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a man by the name of King Philip, and King Philip begins, you know, what, what the Greece was like was it's a, it was a bunch of city-states. And so you had these kingdoms that ruled over all these individual cities and regions and states, and they would fight and squabble with each other in Greece all the time. Well, this man by the name of King Philip came along and said, hey, let's stop fighting against each other and fight against everybody else. And so he was able to kind of gather through, sometimes through negotiations, sometimes through warfare, he was able to assemble a lot of these city-states into one group of area called Macedonia. And King Philip had a son by the name of Alexander. And King Philip is uh, assassinated. They don't know who did it. Even to this day, it's a big mystery in history. You know, was he assassinated? Did he die of natural causes? Nobody knows. But essentially, King Philip dies, and his son is placed on the throne. And at first, the people in those days thought, well, we're just going to, you know, this is going to be a puppet king, and we'll control him. And they found out very quickly that Alexander had a lot bigger aspirations than just ruling Macedonia. Alexander wanted to rule the world, and, and he did that in his day, and that's who we call Al- Alexander the Great. And so Greece begins to appear on the scene, and they begin to battle primarily with Persia. That's kind of their biggest enemy, uh, but, but Alexander the Great begins to, to battle in his own area, and he begins to accumulate victory after victory, in large part due to the army his father put together. His father kind of kind of put together the, the military pack for him and said, here you go, son. And so he went out and he began to win a bunch of battles and begin to knock off one kingdom after the next. And eventually, as he's making his way east, and that's kind of the direction that Alexander the Great travels, uh, as he begins to travel east fighting Persia, he comes to Jerusalem. He comes to um, Israel. Now, the first people he encounters in this time are a group of people that were sent um, to Israel by the Syrians to intermarry with the Jews, and you can read about this in the Old Testament, the Syrians sent in a bunch of their people to go in and intermarry with the Jews, and the offspring of those people uh, were called the Samaritans. This was Samaria. And so these were people that, that the Jews didn't like to begin with because they joined up with their enemies, the Syrians, and intermarried with them. Now they continued to call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says that, but they worshiped in their own way. They kind of worshiped God the way they wanted to, but they still called upon the name of Jehovah, is what the Bible says. Well, when Alexander the Great comes down, and he's going to be, begin to fight with Israel. The first group he kind of makes an alliance with are the Samaritans. And so he gives them this area. He says, because you've been kind to me, I'm going to give you an area called Samaria. And that's where Samaria kind of comes from, 
whenever you come into the New Testament. There was no Samaria in the Old Testament. That's where it came from. Alexander the Great made an agreement with them and created this area of Samaria. And so they, Alexander the Great continues to come into Israel, and he, becomes, he comes to close to the gates of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem knows who Alexander the Great is. They all know that this, this is the world leader, and they're all afraid. And so what the, uh, the priests do at this time is the, the priests say, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Persians aren't in control. They, they, they've, they've ran away. They're scared of Alexander the Great. We're on our own. So they go out, the way the story goes, and this is all written, uh, most of this information I'm telling you is from, uh, from the history of Josephus, if you want to read this later. But uh, he go, uh, the, Alexander the Great's coming to take over Jerusalem, and the way the story goes is all the high priests come out in all their high priestly garb, and they even take out some of the articles that were inside the temple. And what they do, the, what the story goes from Josephus is, they actually take Josephus to the book of Daniel. Because this is, you know, many years later, and they actually take Joseph, uh, I'm sorry, they take, they take uh, Alexander to the portion of scripture where Daniel has this prophecy and, and actually says, hey, our God said this is what was going to happen. You were actually going to come and you were going to take over Persia. Well, of course, this is exactly what Alexander the Great wanted to hear, according, once again, according to Josephus. And so he thought, like, well, this is awesome. You guys are on my side. Josephus goes on to say that Alexander the Great, as a young boy, had this repeating dream. And in this repeating dream, he would be out in the desert and he would be surrounding this giant city, and these men in white would come out and make peace with him, and they would help him establish his kingdom. This was a dream that Alexander the Great, once again, this is according to Josephus, that, um, that Alexander the Great had multiple times as a child. So whenever he goes to Jerusalem, he sees his dream coming to life. He sees this giant city out in the desert with these men in white robes coming out to make peace with him, and so he makes peace with Jerusalem, one of the few um, nations that he didn't, overthrow by force he made peace with them and so uh and so alexander the great continues his conquest farther east into india and he even gets to the 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 the, the foot of the himalayan mountains i mean he wanted to go all the way as far as he could but his men at this time had been on a journey for several years and they weren't quite as ambitious as alexander and they wanted to go home all right and so there's this turmoil um, going on inside of his army and there's once again debate on was he poisoned did he die of you know infection they don't know but at the age of 32 Alexander the Great um, passes away and uh, they brought him back to Alexandria Egypt as he was dying they got him back to Alexandria and as he's dying all of his top generals are around his bed and they want to know like who's going to be in charge next right Alexander's dying we want to know who's going to be ruling you know, Greece after he dies. And the way the story goes is, in his dying breath, Alexander says, the nation belongs to whoever's strong enough to take it. Basically saying like, look, you guys are whoever, if you want to know who I will put in charge, it's whichever one of you could defeat the others. That's exactly, that's kind of what Alexander the Great said when he died. So you have these four primary generals at this time, whenever Alexander dies. And they, so they, what they, they decide to do is divide up his kingdom into four regions. And there's two regions that primarily affect Israel. You have uh, the region that's kind of the Egyptian region. It's called the uh, Ptolemaic region, uh, named after the general that was put in charge of it. And that's pretty much all of northern Egypt, all the way up into Israel. And this, and this, uh, and this king or this general was very kind towards the, Isra uh, towards the Jews as well, because that's what Alexander wanted to have done. So he was very kind to them and let them kind of worship and do their own thing. They had to pay tax, they had to follow the rules, but they pretty much were left to their own to do whatever they wanted. And this was, 
uh, a time where there was a lot of uh, peace there in, in, uh, in Israel. Well, after a period of time, you have another kingdom that, once again, it was one of these other kingdoms divided up out of uh, Alexander the Great's uh, empire. And this was the Seleucid kingdom. And it was more of Syria, more on the Syrian side of things. So who's in the middle between Egypt and Syria? Well, Jerusalem is. So Jerusalem turned into this, like, ping pong ball that they were fighting over back and forth all the time. And eventually, uh, the Seleucid kingdom, this is once again under the Greece empire, the Seleucid uh, kingdom uh, was able to take over power of Jerusalem. And there was a distinct difference in how this kingdom operated versus the Egyptian side. The Seleucid or the Syrian side of the, of the Greece empire, they did not allow you to worship any other god. You could only worship them and they wanted to stamp out any even uh, hope of any type of rebellion or spirit of uprising and so they were very harsh to the Jews. This is a period of time where if you uh, if you if you know your uh, your your history here where they would come in and the Greeks would come in and they actually sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem in the temple that was rebuilt after they were released from Babylon uh, they would uh, come in and they would they would do all types of horrible things to try and defile this Jewish temple, because they were trying to drive them out. They were trying to destroy their religion and their beliefs and their culture, and so they're trying to drive them out of this area. And so after a period of time, uh, the Jews in this area, they, you know, they, they have no king to stand up for them. Uh, they, have no, they have no ruler, and so it falls upon the priests, the priests in those days. So imagine you're in Jerusalem, you're under attack by this you know, this empire that's, you know, from, from Greece, and they're trying to destroy your temple and your religion and your people and everything about you. And so these priests decide we're going to rise up again to fight back. And this is a period of time in history called the time of the Maccabees. And Maccabees is, is, is uh, the name of the oldest son of one of these ten priests that were used uh, to drive out. And they, and they actually drive Greece, this Seleucid empire, they drive them out of Judea through a lot of guerrilla warfare. And a lot of Amazing things happen. Once again, I will leave that between you and God on if you want to believe all the things that they said happened during this time. This is where Hanukkah comes from. Hanukkah actually uh, is where the, the festival started when they actually, after the temple had been defiled, and they came in and they were going to cleanse the temple. And part of the cleansing process was you had to light the candles. And they went to light the candles and they realized that they did not have enough oil to keep the candles burning continually. And so that the candle continued to burn without oil. You probably know the whole story. But the point is, this was a period of time where uh, there was this brief window where the, uh, where the, um, the, the, the empire of Greece had fallen away and been defeated by this little bitty group of rebels in Jerusalem called the Maccabees. And this was just prior to the Roman Empire coming on the scene. Now, before we talk about Rome, just briefly, let's talk about what, 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 did, what did Greece do and what, how did that impact Israel during this time? Well, whenever, once again, whenever Greece came in, you know, uh, they, they, they wanted to take over everything. So one of the things that they would do is they would make you speak their own language. You had to speak Greek. And so if you were in a country that spoke Greek, you were called Hellenistic. And so that meant that you followed uh, you spoke the Greek language and you followed Greek rule and, and rule and law for the most part when it came to business and those types of things. And so Greece would go in and they would overtake a place um, like uh, Israel and they, would, and they would teach them this new language and say, listen, if you want to do business and you want to enjoy prosperity in this new kingdom we've created, you've got to do business in our language. You've got to speak Greek. If you're going to sell, if you're going to go to the market and sell eggs or you're going to go to the market and try and do any business. It can only be done in language 
of Greek. And so everyone, if you wanted to live in those days, you had to learn a second language. And so whenever the Greeks came in, uh, they, it was important for everyone to speak the same language. The other thing that was very important for the Greeks was it was import, important for them to have knowledge. Uh, Aristotle was a Greek. A lot of the people that we think of as the great thinkers back in, uh, back in those days, they came from Greece. And so knowledge was important to them. If you remember history and you recall the, the story of the, uh, the library of Alexandria, this was done by the Greeks in Alexandria, Egypt, where uh, the, the, uh, the Ptolemaic Empire wanted to have a library that basically had all the knowledge in the world. They were trying to create like the literal internet, except all in one place physically in their day. And so they got all these manuscripts from all over the world, and one of them happened to be all the Jewish manuscripts of the Bible. But they wanted to be able to read them, so they made a whole... A whole um, a whole a project where they interpreted the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and it was called the Septuagint because they used 70 uh, you know, Hebrew scholars to interpret the, the manuscript into Greek, and so it's called the Septuagint. Uh, but, th but they thought that knowledge was important. It didn't matter if they agreed or disagreed. They just wanted to keep all this knowledge in, in one place. And, of course, if you know the story, you know, many hundred years later, the Muslims had an uprising, and they burned down the, the uh, li Library of Alexandria. But my point is... Uh, there was a couple of really unique things about the Greek empire that helped when it came to the nation of Israel. Once again, they, they, they created a common language for everyone to speak. You could speak Greek. They, they interpreted the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language so the common people could read it. Because if you were going to sell on the market, you had to speak Greek. Guess what? Now you could read the Bible. You had a Bible you could read in, the, in those days. Well, as you see, you know, this kingdom divided, it continues to divide. The Greek Empire continues to fracture year over year, decade after decade, and eventually it gets to a point where um, the the uh, the empire now is is uh, it's a paper tiger is, is what you would call it. And there's this little community, a little city by the name of Rome. Now, what made Rome unique in this time of these city states and and and, and empires and and men like Alexander the Great? What made Rome different was Rome was all about the peasants, and that's an important distinction. If you lived in those days, you know, uh, the peasants were the people that were the warrior class. Like, that's who was dying in the warfare were the peasants. The peasants were the builders. You know, we, when we think of the word peasant, like, we look, maybe we might have, like, a, a negative connotation. Like, these were the, the weak or simple people. But that, nothing could be more, further from the truth. The peasants are the ones that actually made the world run. Kind of like blue collar today. There's some people that would look down upon that. Oh, they're blue. They didn't go to college. They didn't college degree. No, my friend, you know why you can turn the lights on? Because you got blue-collar people out there. Yeah. You know why you can drive down the road? You got blue-collar people. Well, Rome was a peasant type of environment. They were a blue-collar type of group of people. And you can tell this by the way they did their jobs. Whenever they did something, they did it all the way. That's how you had to live as a peasant back in these days. Look, there was no lazy peasants. You didn't live. You died. You didn't make it. These were people that were, were, were born out of hard work and toil, and they knew what it meant to do things the right way the first time. So when they went to battle, you better believe they left no stone unturned, at least initially. Now, we could talk about the fall of the Roman Empire another day. That's a whole other story. But where I'm talking about where it started and what gave it an advantage over this world-spanning empire of Greece, what allowed this little bitty city of Rome to overtake it? Well, because they kept that peasant mentality. When they went to go build a road, let me tell you, it lasts. It, you can still see their roads today. Yeah. You can go over there and you can look at the roads they built because, once again, that's what made Rome unique. 
They weren't, they weren't, they weren't going to battle for some, for some king they never met. They weren't going to battle for some person that just got, happened to be born in the right family. No, they went to battle for each other. And they took that mentality out. And what you find is this moment in time where Greece is fracturing a few decades before Jesus is born. Greece is fracturing into a million pieces. And this city-state turned into an empire comes and takes over all of Judea. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for a lot of different reasons. I just mentioned, you know, these roads that Rome built. Uh, that they, 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 the Rome did this because, once again, if you think about these, these are people that at their core, it's all about let's take care of our village. That's the mentality built into their DNA as a Roman person. Let's take care of the village. That's what comes first. And it, it, you can see that, like, it's interesting, like, whenever Rome would uh, become victorious over a group, a, a rebellious group of people, uh, it was important for them to take all the treasures all the way back to their village. Even though Rome was a city of a million people at this time and it was spreading all, they didn't, you know, they, they, it wasn't good enough just to win the victory. No, no, we got to make sure we tell all the people back home about it. I mean, this was the mentality of Rome. And that happened to Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus several decades later, whenever Rome was finally destroyed. What did Rome do? They actually, they took all the, all the uh, um, furniture out of the, out of the temple and they paraded it back through the streets back in Rome and you can actually in Rome in Rome today you can look at these ancient arches where they actually chisel into the arches the scene of the uh, the candlesticks being brought back to be shown off in Rome why because these people are all about their hometown let's celebrate back home and tell all the people about it uh, this was kind of how they started so they come on the scene and they and they begin to break through this fractured uh, empire of Greece and Rome takes over and Rome begins to rule in this time right before Jesus begins to reign. And the little bit of time we have left, I want to talk about how this impacted Israel. So what was the impact to Israel and how, and how life was lived in this day whenever Jesus was born? Well, through this whole transition, what you find is Israel no longer had a king. And so the, uh, the way that it worked back in those days was if you wanted to be king, you just paid Rome money and they if you whoever paid Rome the most money got to be king well they did the same thing for the high priest so in these days the high priest and the king were mostly basically it was like up for bid whoever had the most money could become the priest or could become the king and so now you have a divided people there are some people that you know they just want to you know follow the rules and Rome's in charge and we don't want to cause trouble and let's just keep our heads down and let's just follow King Herod you know he's he's got he's brought peace with Rome and we're not having to battle with them so let's just follow King Herod and there's other people that are maybe of more the conservative you know uh the the historical um you know religious type group they're like no no we need to follow our priest even though the priest was bought off even though the priest was just nothing but a puppet they still at least it had a semblance it had a, at least it had a facade of being religious right so you had these different groups of people breaking out and eventually what happens is for the common person in Jew in, in, in Jerusalem uh your your government was almost a dual government where you had this religious government you had to navigate where you had priests and high priests and and all the laws you had to follow and then you had this regular government power that you had to navigate and make sure that you maintained all their laws as well but it was a, a split and divided uh even government within the group of people so how did they rule back in those days when it came to the religious side well they created this group called the Sanhedrin a group of 71 religious leaders that they would bring all their you know disputes to um, and so they would have the Sanhedrin that would be ruling over the people 
And then they had the Pharisees. This was a religious sect that, you know, they were very conservative. They were very, you know, like just let's do it the way it's always been done kind of mentality. Now, where, where did the Pharisees come from? Well, they came from a, a group of zealots that, uh, that whenever they got released from captivity, they said, hey, listen, guys, let's quit, let's quit rebelling against God. It's not working out for us. It doesn't seem to play out very well in the end. We end up in captivity. Let's stop doing that, right? So they said, we're going to make sure that we have a group of people that are just focused on making sure that we keep the law. But for the Pharisees, it wasn't good enough just to keep the law. We need to add to it. We need to add a bunch of man-made rules and re regulations and traditions and and the things that, you know, our grandpa used to do, and that's the way it used to be done, that's the way we need to do it today. Now, I'll, I'll be honest, as I look through the different groups of people that are in this story that we're going to talk about for the next year, if, if I'm just imagining if I was alive in those days, I probably would fall into the group of the Pharisees. And I say that because I just, me personally, I, I like tradition. I like conservatism. I like um, I like doing things the way that they were done by my grandfather, by people that came before me. I find safety in that. If it's not broken, don't fix it, right? And, and so that's kind of the group that I think I would probably fall into if I was living in that day. And that's kind of who these people were. They were the conservative. They were the, uh, they were the you know, don't change it. Let's even make sure we're extra safe and add extra laws and rules to it just to make sure we're all on the same page. And that's who the Pharisees were. But they were there to govern the people. You had another group of people called the Sadducees. These were the, uh, they were, you know, um, outwardly religious, but for them it was all just, it was all just a, uh, 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 a, uh, a story. It wasn't real. It didn't really happen. They didn't really believe that Genesis 1-1 happened the way that it said. It was all just an allegory. It's all just a big parable, and there's good teachings in it, and we should follow it, but there's no afterlife, and there's no death, and there's no, I mean, no, no like eternal death, and there's no heaven, there's no hell. Heaven and hell is right here, right now. And for them, what their God was, was money and power. That's who the Sadducees were. There was another group of people called the Zealots. And these were people that, and once again, think about, you know, whenever Rome comes on the scene, it's in, you know, 30, I think it's in the 30s BC ballpark, whenever, whenever Rome comes on the scene. So now, fast forward to the days of Jesus, you're talking about people whose fathers and grandfathers were completely free. They were in that time between Greece and Rome. So we're talking about just a generation or two in the past. There was no other kingdom ruling over Israel except for Israel. And so there are these children of these parents and grandparents. They're like, why are we letting Rome rule over us? We just had freedom a couple of generations. Let's fight back. These were the zealots. They wanted to overthrow Rome and have freedom again. And in their mind, it was, let's go back to having the high priest in charge all the time. The high priest would rule and, and, and uh, rule and and govern over all of us uh, back in those days. And so this is what's happening during this time of Rome. And so then you have this, uh, this, this, uh, this Edomite um, by the name of Herod, and, and, and Herod is the one that wins that, that bidding for who wants to be king. Herod was an Edomite. He, wasn't, he was not of the lineage of David. He was actually the lineage of uh, Esau. That's where he came from. And, uh, and, and so King Herod gives him the most money to Rome, and so he gets to be, become king. And, uh, and if you know the story of, of Herod, he was a terrible king. Um, the, there's a, there was a saying back in those days that the, uh, that the, um, the pig in the stall um, was safer than the son of Herod, meaning like he, all he cared about was ruling. He wanted no competition. He would kill his own children to make it happen. He would kill hundreds of children to make sure it, it happened. You can read about that during the story of the nativity whenever Herod sent 
his soldiers to kill all the children there in Bethlehem at that time. So, uh, so what's happening? What's transpired over these what we call the 400 silent years before Jesus comes on the scene? Well, what you find is you have the world speaking primarily one, one language, Greek. They have the ability to travel to almost any part of the world's map at that time because of the roads that the Romans had built. And then finally you find that there's a script, a manuscript of the Bible that's available for everyone to read. And, and so this message of a Messiah coming can be spread quickly, and that's exactly what you find happening in the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, what you find is Paul goes from one city to the next, and where does he start? He starts in the synagogues. That's where he starts, from one city to the next. He starts in the synagogue because that's where the Jews are. That's who's going to take the message of the Messiah to first. And he's able to take that message on Roman roads and a Greek Bible. And so whenever Jesus comes and he sacrifices his life and he's resurrected to heaven, now the church is equipped with the truth and they have the ability to take the truth out to the known world and spread the message. So uh, I felt like it was helpful for us before we go into next week and start talking more about the ministry of Jesus to just kind of put all the players on the field so we know when we talk about the Pharisees who they are. When we talk about the Sadducees, we know when we talk about the Sanhedrin, we know who all these people are and why they're part of the story um, and, uh, and hopefully have a better idea of, you know, some of the, some of the, um, some of the ways that Jesus communicates to the people because it makes a difference. So, all right, well, I uh, didn't do a whole lot of Bible study today. This is more like a world history, but once again, I think that's important. Anybody have any uh, questions, thoughts, anything maybe I might have missed or misspoken on this morning before we move forward? Okay, well, next week uh, we will be a little more in the Bible. Uh, it won't be so much of a history lesson. Um, and we'll be talking about, once again, what was the message of Jesus' ministry? What was the methods of Jesus' ministry? We'll talk a little bit about his miracles. And then probably the following week, we'll get into those days of the life, okay? So let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Uh, thank you for your people coming out and having a desire to learn more about you. I pray that you would help us as we go into this study this year. I certainly feel uh, intimidated and a little overwhelmed and trying to teach about something so important. So I pray that you would help me and pray that you would help this class. That as a result of this time together, that we would become more like Christ. We do pray for the service to come. Be with our pastor. Use him this morning as we talk about our theme for this year. Lord, help us as a church to, to dwell on unity and support one another. In Christ, and we pray. Amen.